welcome to everyone joining us online and here in person for today's hybrid year active event, Making Better Use of Biofuels. How can the EU ensure policy consistency? My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, as I'm sure everyone watching this and everyone here in the audience knows, the EU has had a long policy journey with biofuels with many ups and downs. The latest chapter came with the revision of the Renewable Energy Directive, which was proposed in 2021 as part of the Fit for, five, fit for 55 package implementing Ursula von der Leyen's Green Deal, and it's now becoming law. Today we're going to talk about these latest legislative changes and how they're going to affect biofuels, how they'll fit into achieving the EU's goals for fighting climate change, and what is the latest science around the sustainability of crop-based biofuels. Will they be included in the definition of carbon-neutral fuels in the context of a future ban on internal combustion engines? There's still a lot of questions floating around out there about the future of biofuels, and we're today going to try to get some answers about where this policy area is headed. And we're lucky to be joined by some very knowledgeable panelists sitting here with me. So let me introduce you to them now. We have here with us Bernd Kupker, who's Administrator for the Unit on Decarbonization and Sustainability of Energy Sources at the European Commission's Energy Department. We have Chelsea Baldino, who is a senior research at the think tank, the International Council on Clean Transportation, ICCT. We have David Carpertino, Carpertero, Director General of the Renewable Ethanol Industry Association, ePure. And joining us online, we have Michael Karras, who is founder and CEO of the research institute, NOVA. Now, you'll be able to ask your questions to the panelists, whether you're watching online or also here in the room. In either case, you're going to do that using Slido. So you can see if you're watching at home, you can see that QR code that's just come up on your screen. If you're here in the room, you can use your smartphone to scan the QR code there on the screen. Put your questions in. You can put those questions in starting now. They'll come here on my tablet, and I'll ask them to the panelists at the end of the panel. So let's get into it. Bernd, let's start with you. Um, I mentioned how important this revision is for the future of biofuels. So how has this revision of the Renewable Energy Directive changed the way biofuels are? How will it change the way that biofuels are accounted for in EU legislation? Well, I would say the following. I mean, the, generally, the, the subject of, of this, um, this debate is very spot on on what the um, revision of the Renewable Energy Directive as well as the fifth, uh, Fit for 55 package wants to achieve. So we want to make best use of the sustainable energy sources that we have, including biofuels, but of course also not limited to biofuels. So when we look at it um, with regards particular to, to biofuels, I mean, we are continuing with a journey we have um, started um, long ago. I mean, it is not an abrupt change, but it is a continued change. So there are kind of two dimensions here. So the first dimension is that we want to integrate um, biofuels as, uh, as one of the source to supply renewable and low-carbon fuels in those sectors where they are the most needed. So that is part of energy system integration strategy. 
And the second element is that we want to promote the most sustainable fuels. And in the red, we have done this sector integration part by focusing in particular on the use of, of biofuels and renewable fuels in sectors uh, like aviation and maritime. So that's part of the red, but it's also part of other legislations like um, yeah, the refuel initiatives for maritime and aviation. And with regard to sustainability, we have there an approach that we are promoting and focusing on the promotion particularly of advanced biofuels. While um, conventional biofuels are limited and uh, biofuels with high ILOC risk um, are, yeah, are phased out. So that's the, the one dimension, dimension. And further with regard to sustainability, we're also continuing with this having targets which uh, focus on, uh, in, uh, on maximizing the potential of emission savings by having both the target for uh, renewables and also, which comes historically from the FQD, a target on the reduction of the emission intensity of fuels. Um, Chelsea, let me move to you. I, I'm looking for really what the, the scientific situation is here at the moment. What can the latest science on the sustainability of biofuels tell us right now, and how can it be used in this EU policy framework that's being developed? Yeah, thanks, um, and thank you for having me here today. Um, while I have my introductory floor, I'll just quickly introduce the ICCT in general. So we're a nonprofit research organization with the aim of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector. Um, and I work on fuels, so um, mainly focused on the energy side of the transportation sector. Um, to answer your question, the overwhelming um, scientific literature and economic literature shows that um, biofuel policy, particularly food and feed-based biofuel policy, is associated with increases in food prices. And what that means is that um, more, more food and feed material is produced, more land is brought into production, even when accounting for other factors like um, increases in yield, for example. And that is associated with greenhouse gas emissions from land use change emissions. Um, there is certainly nuance to that. Um, so within the literature, there is uh, evidence that the greater the demand from the biofuel policy, so for example, in the US, um, where there's a really strong demand for ethanol feedstocks, the impacts on food prices are worse. Um, in Europe, where the demand for ethanol is less, um, the effects are, are, um, are a little bit less, but that is the general effect. Um, it is also the case um, along the same lines that in Europe, the impact of uh, vegetable oil, uh, vegetable oils, is worse than ethanol. Um, but overall, what the research suggests is that food and feed-based um, feedstocks cannot contribute to the deep decarbonization that we need to, um, yeah, especially decarbonize the hardest to decarbonize sectors. So aviation and maritime, and I think therefore that um, limiting these conventional biofuel feedstocks um, is, is aligned with the science. Um, and then since sustainability is, is very much um, connected to equity, it's important to note that these increases in food prices are going to affect and do affect the global south the most because people in the global south spend more of their income 
on raw commodities, and so they are affected the most when they see an increase um, in, food, in food prices. But to end on a more positive note, um, then I would like to note that the advanced biofuel feedstocks, so true wastes and residues that don't have competing uses, those can be um, very sustainable, low greenhouse gas feedstocks um, that we will need to decarbonize transport alongside um, synthetic fuels such as uh, hydrogen and its derivatives, such as e-fuels. Well, speaking of those different types of biofuels, let's turn to David next. So tell us, how can renewable ethanol be impacted by the Renewable uh, Energy Directive by this latest recast? Thank you, Dave, for the question. Uh, also, it's a pleasure to be here in this debate. Um, just to address on, um, a comment from Chelsea on the price increase, um, I mean, my family is in farming in Spain, and uh, we don't see any price increase. On the contrary, we see agricultural prices um, how depleted. Uh, we would very welcome very much a, a price increase, but not the case, uh, uh, and even less from um, biofuels. When it comes to renewable ethanol, our footprint in agricultural land in Europe is 1%, so it's hard to see how 1% of the use could impact uh, prices. Um, uh, going, going to the question, um, we welcome very much uh, the revision of Red 2. Uh, first, is increasing the ambition, and I think it's putting Europe in a position of global leadership when it comes to energy transition and opening the way to, to, to the rest of the world uh, areas. Uh, so so that's, I think that's very welcome for, uh, we, we everyone should welcome that. When it comes to um, renewable ethanol, we see that the sustainability criteria is still out there. And uh, I think this sustainability criteria play a very important role to define what is sustainable, what is not sustainable. And in Europe, when we use some crops, some biomass, to produce renewable ethanol is because we are meeting the sustainability criteria. I think that's one of the key elements that provides this uh, regulatory framework to define uh, sustainability and sustainable uses of, of biomass, including for uh, renewable biofuels. The crop cap is now defined at 2020 levels, plus uh, 1%. If we see that at the moment we are an update of uh, crop-based um, um, renewable biofuels, of 3.7%, a 1%, I mean, it's not exact, no? but as an approximation could mean that an additional 25% could be produced as an approximation. Eh? So, so in that sense, that good news, unfortunately, the 7% limit is now per member state. We were proposing that the 7% were going to be, was going to be applied at a European uh, level because some member states are more ready or have more ambition to do more and could compensate for all those lagging, which is the reality. Some member states are not up to the challenge. And we think that that's unfortunate, no? Because it's going to limit those which are willing actually to do more. And we think um, that's, that's not encouraging for those, for those uh, member states. We welcome that the regulation sets these uh, new targets for advanced. We need to continue uh, encouraging the development of advanced uh, biofuels advanced ethanol as well, so uh, that, that's very much welcome. But when it comes to our path to 2030 targets, I mean, the target on uh, uptake of uh, energy is 29%. And we at the moment, according to the latest data from the shares uh, database of the European Commission, we are at uh, 7%, 6.9 exactly, with the latest data. If you put multipliers, is 9%. 
So we are at 9% now, and we want to reach 29% in 2030. That's ambitious, but it's also going to put a, a, a challenge on um, the need to use every single solution that really can help us to get uh, to that objective. In this sense, I mean, buyers of uh, new cars continue to choose gasoline cars. Uh, gasoline plus gasoline hybrids plus gasoline plug-in hybrids amount for 70% of sales of new cars. And uh, we need to defossilize that fleet. And those cars are going to be on the road for a long time. So uh, in that sense, uh, we need to encourage those member states which are still lagging in the adoption of A20, uh, sorry, of A10 to implement it without further delay. I think that this stage of, of the game, it is surprising that some member states, not many, I mean, majority have already moved from E5 to E10, but we also see some countries like Spain or Italy, where, I mean, if you, I get a drive from Brussels to Spain every year, and I see when I cross the Pyrenees, <laughs> I see the E5, that, that's anachronic at this stage. So I think um, there should be um, local actions to really implement E10, because we need to defossilize this fleet while we continue to uh, develop uh, E20 uh, in Europe. Uh, however, also in our path to 2030, I think it's unfortunate that crop-based is uh, marginalized when it comes to aviation of, or maritime. In aviation is uh, an explicit marginalization. In maritime is implicit, basically they are treated the same way as uh, fossil fuels. And that's unfortunate we think because it's not going to help in the transition, crop base could have helped in this transition at the beginning to facilitate an early decarbonization, maybe to put the rules that as soon as we have alternatives to push for the alternatives, where we are missing, in our view, an opportunity to really ensure uh, the fossilization of both aviation and, and maritime. Uh, and when it comes to the value of ethanol, I mean, the current defossilization of transport, 90% is done thanks to biofuels. Renewable electricity is only 1.3%. I mean, let's compare 1.3 versus 90%. I think that speaks volumes of the value we get precisely from this ethanol, this renewable ethanol, to the fossilized transport, which is our common goal here. And ethanol is the most uh, inclusive and cost-efficient way to the fossilized uh, uh, transport, and it's readily available now. Uh, it is produced on 50 biorefineries we have all across Europe, where we produced in 2022 4.5 million tons of renewable ethanol, but also we produced, and that's very important, 6 million tons of vegetable protein in these biorefineries. These biorefineries play a strategic role in the domestic supply of vegetable protein in Europe that uh, could make us uh, more autonomous with this discussion, current discussion on strategic autonomy for Europe, but also contribute to food security, contribute to uh, emission reductions, and to energy independence. So I would suggest that uh, probably there has been an element in the revision of not being um, as technology inclusive as, as we could have uh, been. And uh, the European Court of Auditors basically pointed to that and saying that uh, battery electric vehicles alone will not take us to where we want to be when it comes to um, the fossilization of transport. Well, let's turn to Michael next, joining us remotely. So, 
Michael, you've been looking at some of the, the effects that can be had here, both with the Renewable Energy Directive and with the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Direct uh, Regulation, SAF regulation. Um, what will be the impact of those two legislative changes on the supply of the chemical industry with renewable carbon? Yeah, many thanks for the questions and many thanks for having me here. The echo, I hope you... Yes, my voice is clear. Okay. Um, yes, first I introduce myself. I'm Michael Carroth. I'm CEO of Nova Institute. The Nova Institute is an um, independent um, private institute with 50 scientists working mainly in the chemical sector. And I'm also representing Renewable Carbon Initiative. This is an initiative of uh, nearly 70 companies from the chemical and material sector on the way to uh, defossilize their business. Um, looking for the chemical industry first um, to organize a transition from fossil carbon to renewable carbon, um, the RED and also the aviation fuel policy is a very positive example how to create demand for the right solutions. Um, we can't see anything like this in the chemical sector. Uh, where nothing like this is implemented. So it's interesting to see how both sectors impact. And the previous speakers uh, said we should use uh, biofuels or I think renewable carbon in general, uh, mainly in those applications where it's really needed. And this is aviation, this is uh, maritime, but it's of course also the chemical and material sector uh, because here, the industry is, or the processes are based on carbon, uh, so we can't replace carbon by electricity or hydrogen. We need carbon, uh, embedded carbon in the molecules. And um, so, so looking to the impact of the new, um, new positions, uh, we are very happy that in the aviation fuel, sustainable aviation fuel, there's such a strong focus on CO2-based fuels in the long run, especially, uh, because this is, uh, of course, um, lowering the demand for biofuels. So I see here really huge, huge potential. Um, and also for the chemical sector, we need biofuels, we need or bio, biomass, we need uh, CO2 utilization, and we also need uh, chemical recycling to cover the huge demand of the chemical industry for carbon. And um, when I look to the demand created by the sustainable aviation fuel policy, I think it's something like 70% um, to 2050, um, and half of it is CO2 and half biomass, or at least 35% uh, uh, by CO2 based. Uh, this will, of course, create a huge demand uh, for non-food crops. Um, the demand in, um, we have in total 60 million tons uh, kerosene in Europe. Uh, that means 45 um, million has to produce by CO2 or bio. And so the half is, is about bio. And this is mainly taking uh, bio waste, uh, forest waste, algae, and those second generation or third generation feedstock. And um, this will have the impact for the chemical industry that the market is almost. Um, they are covered by aviation fuels because they can just pay more because of the quota and the binding rules. Or well, the chemical sector will have big problems to get access 
um, to this bioways and second, third generation streams. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if the use of um, food crops in the fuel industry will decrease, um, in principle, the chemical industry could use food crops. That could be interesting because a lot of uh, those processes are based on fermentation. Fermentation needs sugar and starch. And if you look what are the best um, biomass for fermentation, in many cases it's, uh, it's our food crops, starch and sugar crops. Uh, they, have, they are highly efficient, they are, they are very land efficient, they deliver proteins as byproducts. And the competition is not in a certain crop, the competition is on land. So if I have a very efficient crop, um, so for example, if you take second generation sugars from wood compared to sugar, sugar beet, um, the, the difference in, um, in, in land use is about times 20 or 30. Uh, so this had strong uh, impact on biodiversity issues. Um, so this is my first contribution here. I'm happy for the, on the discussion and uh, also to discuss more about the interaction between uh, the rules in the energy sector and the assess uh, for the chemical industry to feedstock. And again, the chemical industry cannot be decarbonized, it can only be defossilized. There is a long need for carbon and even an increasing demand for carbon on global level. Thanks, Michael. So let's turn to a topic that's very much in the news, very much a hot topic, which is um, the idea of a phase out of the internal combustion engine. Um, Berndt, how will, so, so such a phase out will affect all liquid fuels, including renewable liquid fuels. So how would, will, a ban on internal combustion engines, what will that mean for liquid fuels? And specifically, what will it mean for biofuels? Well, first of all, I mean, usually this terminology of ban, it's not, not fully mm. correct because you're aware that uh, it is not a ban, but it is indeed something that's a promotion of, 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 um, yeah, of uh, zero carbon vehicles by, by putting costs on, on tailpipe emissions. So that's something else. Um, but, but just as a technical comment, but generally we believe that... Um, uh, electrification of road transport is the most effective way to decarbonize um, transport. And therefore, we believe that also the, the market will go in this direction. So, um, so no ban needed on, on that. But we have uh, a clear road, and we see in all the, all the world that it's going in the direction of, uh, of electrification. Um, so that's just one question. Specifically on the carbon neutral fuels, I mean, that's a file which is not um, specifically followed by, by DG Ener, but our colleagues in uh, DG Klima who are in lead on this file. So the commission is working on that, but it is an ongoing process. So um, how exactly this, um, yeah, this proposal uh, for, for this standard will look like, we have to still to see. Um, yeah, just as some words from my side. Chelsea, as we as we go forward in this, as as Bernd mentions, this is uh, you know you could look at it as a ban, but it is restricting to a level where a, a traditional ICE engine wouldn't meet the requirements, right? So if you if I guess it's, it's going to depend on how carbon neutral fuels are defined, right? How do you see biofuels possibly fitting in 
within that context of a phase out of traditional ICE engines? Um, yeah, good question. I think generally from the beginning, um, from the recital that came in, it was clear that these uh, so-called carbon neutral fuels should be basically synthetic fuels produced from renewable electricity, so e-fuels. Um, I think, I mean, those are the only scalable low greenhouse gas um, fuel options that we have. So I think this was a good decision. Um, I mean, based on what I was saying earlier about the, the risks associated with conventional biofuels. So um, I think, yeah, that was, that was a, a good signal from the commission. And I would just add while we're on the topic of, of these so-called carbon neutral fuels that there, there is a fraud risk um, with these fuels, um, both potentially on the fuel supplying side as well as the, um, the engine side. And so we hope that when these rules are released, um, that there's physical testing for the, the fueling monitor um, and the inducement system in the vehicle, and that there's regular testing throughout the vehicle's lifetime. Um, for example, I'm, I'm not the vehicle expert at ICCT, but I believe it's called the in-service conformity testing. So we would hope for that as well. David, how do you see the phase out of ICEs affecting the biofuels sector? And in particular, what do you envision or what do you hope for in terms of the definition of carbon neutral fuels in the legislation? Yeah, well, I, I couldn't be more in agreement with Chelsea. I think once we have a definition of carbon neutral fuels, it has to be enforced strictly and to ensure that vehicles running on carbon neutral fuels are really uh, responding to that uh, requirement and that uh, there is no room for any fraud. And we as an industry are the first one really uh, asking for a very strict uh, uh, system that ensures uh, that only carbon neutral fuels are, are, are used. Um, I, I think we shouldn't be pushing for one technology or another. What matters is, are we using carbon neutral fuels? Are we reaching zero greenhouse gas emissions? As the commission was saying in a recent Q&A document, that I think it was very, very useful. The target is zero GAG emissions. The way we get there shouldn't matter. We should have, we should have a system, a methodology, that assesses from the very beginning, according to a life cycle approach, to the very end, which are the GAG emissions, and take decisions based on that. And take into account what are the GAG emissions of producing the vehicle, of producing the tires, of producing the battery, of the energy consumed during the life of the vehicle. And once we have that information, compare the different options. Which is the one helping us to really obtain the higher reduction in GAG? Which is the one that is going to be the most socially inclusive? Because we cannot do an energy transition that is only for the rich. We cannot leave a segment of the population that cannot afford a 60,000 euro car out of the energy transition. That's why I think carbon neutral fuels will play a key role. As, as an industry, we are progressing to that. Last year, we were 78.4% GG reductions in average. Some of our members, some European producers of renewable ethanol are already above 90%. Some are even close to 95%. And that's thanks to the work of these 21 companies producing renewable ethanol in Europe, 
that started with some biorefineries 15 years ago, and they've been steadily improving the GEG footprint, investing in OPEX, hiring engineers, sustainability experts, working closely on the processes, how to continue improving. And the same way that the Commission is putting Europe in a position of global leadership, our European producers of ethanol are also in a position of global leadership when it comes to the improvement of our GAG footprint. And I think that in the future, that should be the objective, to really offer all citizens the opportunity to meet this mobility that is 100% GAG emissions free. Michael, how do you see a phase out of ICEs impacting biofuels and what are you anticipating for the definition of carbon neutral fuels as part of that? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think the focus on um, electricity uh, in road tra transport and e-fuels is a very good um, uh, focus because he has really huge demand uh, and the pressure on biomass uh, supply uh, should be lower than today. So it's good to have this focus. Um, and I, uh, I invite all the bioethanol producers and the biorefinable producers uh, um, to deliver their products, not anymore in the fuel market in the future, but in the chemical market. Um, we, we, so we would support DG Klima with a proposal of sustainable carbon cycles in December 21 to have also binding targets for the material and chemical sector. Today, the share of bio and CO2 and recycling carbon uh, is about 8% um, of the chemical material industry. And the proposal of DG Klima was to have a target of 20%. Uh, and to fulfill this target of 20%, uh, the existing bioethanol production could be very well used. So I think we need here an, an, an concept renewable energy and material directive which covering the energy market and the chemical market. And then we, there's no need to, to sell bioethanol uh, in a long run in the fuel market because there is a huge demand from the chemical industry. And so we need a bigger picture and we need also legislation covering the energy and the material sector. And there's a lot to do and there are different concepts under development in discussion with different DGs uh, to, because um, the, as I said before, the embedded carbon in chemicals and materials cannot re be replaced, also not in 500 years, it can never be replaced by something which is not carbon. So we need here carbon and it would be um, strange to destroy the great infrastructure of the bioethanol uh, industry, for example, um, if another sector needs the same as, in, as chemical intermediates. So we should organize the transformation from bioethanol for fuels to bioethanol and other fermentation products to the chemical industry. Berndt, I wanted to ask you, I, I alluded in the beginning to um, the, you know, in the past decade, we were on a bit of a policy roller coaster with biofuels, and now things are more calm. Do you see that the policy landscape as being a stable one? I guess, actually, I, I'd, I'd ask you, do you agree with that characterization of the past decade uh, in terms of rules on biofuels. Uh, and would you say that right now we are in a, a stable place from the Commission's perspective? Well, I would say I partially agree with that. Okay. So I, I would say that indeed, I mean, if you, we started biofuel balls in 2003, first with voluntary targets, and then there was kind of a learning process with 
adding on sustainability um, criteria in, in with the first renewable energy directive, and then having limits uh, and dedicated targets uh, for certain types of, of biofuels. But it was not a roller coaster in, in kind of completely changing directions. So it, it was an adjustment process. And in this adjustment process, um, also investment which have been made were taken into account. So we had on, on, on biofuels, on first generation biofuels, um, a long debate on, on ILOC, but there, it was no decision to, to pick out all conventional biofuels. It was said, okay, we, we have a certain level and this level we maintain. Um, and we leave a bit more room. So we are not setting targets specifically for first generation biofuels, but member states have the possibility to decide whether they want to keep them or not. Um, so it was all a balanced approach, adjusting to the developments and knowledge in, in science. So, and yeah, and, and with, when you look at this development, so the sustainability aspects of, um, of conventional biofuels, there we kept, uh, with this revision, we kept the approach almost unchanged. Um, so I would say, yes, indeed, it is, it is stable and the direction is very clear. So, um, yeah, but adjustment had to be made. David, would you agree that the policy framework for biofuels is more stable now than it was in the past? Well, what is clear is that some inconsistency remain. Uh, the fact that you cannot use uh, crop-based uh, biofuels in maritime or aviation, I think, is a missed opportunity for the moment. I hope we can correct that. I don't know how. But I think it is very unfortunate that we cannot help in this transition with some, some kind of transitionary use. Ah, we, I'm not, we don't say it should be kind of the permanent use, but let's help those industries to transition. And by excluding crop base, we are making them more difficult. Ethanol to jet, for example, now needs to depend on the production of uh, a 2G ethanol that at this moment we don't have. And creating the opportunity not necessarily is going to uh, develop the, the, the volumes. We need to help them to transition and crop-based ethanol could be a great way to help the industry to develop early volumes of uh, alcohol to jet. It would be unfortunate that we see this developing much faster in other world areas, while Europe uh, remains lagging because of uh, missing these opportunities. Uh, in our view, this is an opportunity we cannot miss, and we should be thinking of ways to allow this transitionary use of crop-based to help aviation and maritime. Chelsea, um, thinking specifically about um, transport policy, trans renewable transport policy, do you think that this latest revision of the Renewable Energy Directive is enough to get the EU to its 2030 targets? Um, and will it also be enough to get to a future 2040 target if we have one? Oh, I think that question's better for Barron's than it is for me. Um, but I sure hope so. Um, and I would just reiterate that I think that the clear signal supporting the advanced biofuel technologies as well as synthetic fuels produced from renewable electricity is, is what we're going to need um, to, to meet hopefully even more ambitious 2040 targets. Parents, uh, what would you say? Well, I mean, we are still working on the 2030 framework, and I mean, we just uh, 
um, well, completed the negotiation on the current rat. So maybe it's a bit early now to talk about uh, additional changes uh, immediately. So we should implement what we have. And if we do that, and we need to do this quickly, and uh, then, then we will achieve the 2030 target. So we don't have uh, any doubt about that. Well, you mentioned implementing what we have. So as is always the case with EU legislation, once it passes, then it comes to the transposition and the implementation. And that's always really key, how the national governments are actually going to put this into national law and, most importantly, enforce it. Um, Michael, let's go to you. Um, as we're looking at the national implementation of the Renewable Energy Directive changes, what key things are you watching for, particularly as you're watching the effects on these other sectors? Yeah, it's also different from country to country, of course. So, so uh, there is no general statement on that. Uh, we see that some member states um, are starting to, to care about more about the supply with non-fossil carbon for the chemical industry. Uh, I think there's Netherlands, Sweden, Austria, Italy. So some member states are here um, keeping an eye on the development uh, very well. And um, uh, of course, if it would happen that in the chemical industry there will be quotas in the future and uh, crop-based crop um, carbon would also be not supported. Um, and on the other hand, uh, sustainable aviation fuel absorbing most of the uh, bio-waste streams and, um, and, and other allowed biomass, uh, then we would have a huge gap in the chemical industry that could not easily be filled. Of course, also synthetic uh, carbon, so CLCCU, carbon capitalization, is here also a pathway, um, but it's, uh, they need a lot of implementation to uh, have enough carbon supply from this side. In the sustainable aviation fuel, I could imagine uh, because of this binding quota, um, there is, this is much more attractive to um, invest uh, in new technologies like uh, Fisher Trops, for example. And here the interesting point is, and we are just working on this uh, point at our institute, um, if you produce kerosene from CO2 or from syngas, um, you would also have some side streams that could be used for the chemical industry. Uh, you can't produce just 100% kerosene, you have always some other chemicals uh, as output. And so it's an interesting question uh, whether even if the biomass or the CO2 is mainly absorbed by the, um, the aviation industry, whether there are relevant streams um, for inter of intermediates for the chemical industry. Um, but this is not really evaluated so far. And so there here are a lot of interesting um, questions to, uh, to discuss and solve in the next um, uh, years, um, because this transformation of the chemical industry is a big topic. Uh, also the Green Deal, and they just need carbon. And so the question is, uh, in, in, con in competition to the energy sector where we have these quota systems, uh, how we can really find uh, new legislation to cover also the demand of the chemical sector. And this is just in the beginning. So we are discussing with DG Grow, DG Climate, DG Environment, uh, but so far there is no clear framework uh, developed in the chemical sector. David, what key things are you guys watching for in the transposition and implementation of this revision? Well, I think that the member states have a, an incredible challenge ahead towards 2030. And every uh, solution counts. And in, in that sense, um, 
we have a, an opportunity with the um, locally produced uh, biomass to, to work with it to get all the value uh, they, they can. And Michael, in a recent report, they, he used an interesting term, which is um, a, a report he published as NOVA, on, uh, he used the term multipurpose crops. And I think that's interesting. I mean, in a field where you are getting a crop of corn, uh, the next year we will get another harvest uh, of, of corn, and the next year we will get another harvest. Every year you can choose how to best use uh, this crop depending on the needs. It gives you flexibility. I think as Europe, we need flexibility, but we are going to face, I think, huge um, geostrategic challenges going forward. The more flexibility we give us as well in the regulation, I think the better prepared we will be as European Union to face this uncertainty going forward. Certainty will not be there. There will be a lot of uncertainty in the context and we need to give us flexibility. And these multipurpose crops is a way to uh, basically address needs on chemistry, address needs on uh, transport. We have the possibility every year to decide. If we put on a farm solar panels, this farm is not going to produce any crop in those 25 years that normally is the length of the contract for uh, the installation of solar panels on farming land. And this happened now in Europe. Uh, the advantage of a crop-based biomass is that it's precisely providing you this flexibility to move to food if it is needed, to continue using it to fuels if it is needed, to move more to uh, chemistry if it is needed, it gives us flexibility. Other ways of producing renewable electricity are precisely hindering now with this uh, flexibility. So, I mean, it's not gold, everything that uh, shines. I think we need to be very critical on the way we're approaching and enabling member states to uh, reach these targets. And in our view, a crowd-based biomass is a great tool uh, to meet uh, these challenges. It should be used as much as possible and enabling uh, our biorefineries to really uh, work uh, in providing uh, all segments of society a cost-effective way to the fossilist transport. Chelsea, would you agree that that type of flexibility is important? And also, what are the key things you're watching for uh, in the transposition and implementation of the revision? Yeah, thanks. Um, I would just go back to my first point that um, we don't see an opportunity for food and feed-based uh, feedstocks to provide a significant decarbonization of transport, so I would reiterate that and disagree. Um, in terms of what we're watching for when member states implement the Renewable Energy Directive, um, one thing that they have an opportunity to do is, so um, currently the, the high ILUC feedstocks, um, which at present is palm oil, um, that could change, but um, at present, that phase-out at the EU level is 2030, so several member states have decided to um, phase-out uh, palm very quickly, as well as some with soy, and there's an opportunity for even more member states to do that. Um, there's a lot of evidence that these are the worst of all the food and feed-based feedstocks, um, in, in some cases even worse than fossil fuels. Um, another thing that there's a real opportunity uh, for is for member states to come up with mechanisms to credit both public and private charging. Um, this would allow for um, 
the maximum renewable energy to count towards their targets, and that will make the 29% renewable energy target or the 14.5% greenhouse gas um, reduction target even more achievable. Um, Bernd, whenever the commission uh, puts forward a proposal, I think usually you know there's going to be key things that might be tricky with implementation, uh, with well, transposition in particular. So, what key things are, is the commission watching um, where where there might be significant variation between member states uh, in this revision, uh, or things that might be challenging for some member states to enforce or to implement? Well, I think the the key thing that we will look at is how. Um, member states implement the supply obligation uh, in transport because that's the instrument which is supposed to um, ensure that the targets um, are achieved, so either the emission-based target or the energy-based target is, is achieved. And there we, we look at whether the, uh, the, the um, level of ambition of this um, supply obligation is correct whether you also have then the required limitations um, included so that that actually the accounting can achieve this level then obviously how what is done with um, the credit mechanism so how the member states include uh, the contribution of electric vehicles and the achievement of the targets because what we believe is that um, for the for achieving of the very ambitious targets we will need to have a very um, large um, um, contribution of electrification. Otherwise, we will not achieve these targets. Um, and of course, then on of advanced biofuels and synthetic renewable-based fuels. So these are the things which will grow the most, while conventional biofuels will keep at the same level. I mean, they're still energy-wise by far the, the biggest part. But this will no longer be the case, or less the case, in, in 2030. So, yeah, so there, there, that's, that's our focus. Okay, let's take some questions that have come in via Slido. Again, here in the room or online, you can put your questions into Slido, and I'll read them out to the panelists. Uh, first question is for David. Uh, this question is from Andrea Canzano. Do you think that the limitations set by EU legislation on agri-feedstocks for advanced biofuel will result in outsourcing out of the European Union their production, and as a result, a missed opportunity for EU farmers for an extra source of income? Yeah, indeed. Um, actually, the crop cap means that uh, farmers are missing an opportunity to obtain additional revenue selling to, to this stream. Um, we have uh, the sustainability criteria, and I think it's good that we have very clear sustainability criteria, but undoubtedly uh, uh, this is playing against uh, European farmers. So additional volumes, uh, I think still could make sense. Uh, uh, we have 3.5% of, of uptake at the moment. Uh, this means a 1% of uh, footprint when it comes to agricultural land in Europe, uh, so we will remain with a very, very, very small amount of uh, crops that European farmers can sell for the production of uh, renewable ethanol in this case. Probably there could be room to use more this stream and still keeping within very reasonable uh, terms of sustainability. Uh, I don't know if this could be revised at some moment, 
uh, but again, it's 1% of the EU agricultural land. I mean, we are talking about really something that is uh, almost uh, negligible and that pales in comparison to the use of uh, these crops for feed use or for all the living industrial uses. Okay, the, so the next question here is for Berntz. Uh, this question is from David Abiago from Argus Media. Uh, is there any chance that the EU's carbon neutral fuels could include CO2 neutral biofuels? Well, I mean, as I said, I mean, I'm not working in the service which um, deals with this particular service and the discussion is still ongoing, so I cannot um, prejudge the outcome outcome of that, so I cannot really comment on that. Okay. Um, anyone else want to comment on that issue of CO2 neutral biofuels? Uh, okay, so we had a next question here from uh, Josh Gartland. It's to Chelsea. You could say it's a question of clarification. Uh, it's about something you said earlier. Uh, Josh asks, is ICCT seriously saying that renewable hydrogen will be a cost-effective and practical transport fuel? Um, that's a good question. So certainly um, renewable hydrogen is really expensive. Um, so that's a good point. We definitely need to bring down the cost of um, electrolyzers. Those are the biggest capital cost in renewable hydrogen production. Um, and yeah, I mean, renewable electricity also plays a big role. So those are two big factors that um, we, yeah, need to continually bring down. Um, I didn't say that it was low cost, um, so sorry if anyone misinterpreted that, but it is certainly um, the, the basis of, of all the fuels that we think could play a significant role in decarboning, decarbonizing transportation. Um, Okay, uh, so next question is for Bernd. It's from Anders Roy. Hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, the present definition of a carbon neutral fuel in the DGGrow TCMV proposal is asking for at least 100% fossil CO2 reduction. Not even all genuine e-fuels are able to fulfill that, and available fuel volumes will be minimal even 10 to 15 years from now. Why not accept 90% to get some fuels in the markets? Well, I mean, if you look at the term carbon neutral, it means normally zero. So, I mean, that's the intuitive question for that. Apart from that, I mean, I'm not really fully in, in this debate, so I, uh, I'm a bit reluctant to take a position on particular on, on this question, but I mean, from the wording, you can uh, very much understand that. And maybe given to the, the question also on the hydrogen, because that's, that's very relevant, also from our perspective, I mean, we... As I included in the, or in the beginning, we believe that renewable um, fuels and those gases will play an important role, but you have to use in them in the sectors where they are the um, where, where electrification is most difficult. So using hydrogen everywhere will be expensive. Also in, in some transit mode, it will be expensive. But costs will come down because we will have more renewable electricity, and if you have more renewable electricity, also the hydrogen produced from the renewable electricity will be cheaper in the future, but obviously not everywhere. And therefore, we believe that it will be cost competitive in those sectors where it's needed. Okay, so we have a next question here uh, to David from Chris Mullins. Question is, 
uh, David talked about having flexibility to move crops between the fuel and food markets. But hasn't the biofuel industry opposed any move to reduce biofuel targets during each of the food price cases since 2000, food price spike uh, crises, rather? If they're serious about flexibility, shouldn't ePure advocate a more flexible mandate structure? Well, we saw during the uh, recent um, crisis when uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine uh, that basically there was no tension on the market, on the European market. Uh, the risk was between some exports from Russia towards the uh, Middle East, but the European market was basically, and the numbers are there to show it, basically uh, untouched. There was no, uh, basically, a, a pressure on uh, our domestic supply of grain. We supply from European producers, from European farmers. Uh, we produce for um, European uh, uh, blends uh, of gasoline. So uh, in that sense, um, we have seen no um, impact so far. But still, flexibility is important. And uh, that's where kind of the use of crop biomass, in our view, could have still some potential to be, to be explored under this uh, concept. Uh, as we move forward in the energy transition, and we think, for example, on uh, 2035 and this goal of uh, zero greenhouse gas emissions, uh, electricity will play a role, undoubtedly. I think electricity, for example, when it comes to uh, urban traffic is, is unbeatable, is the best solution by far. We need to acknowledge it. But uh, battery electric vehicles are not the response to many mobility needs. I mean, we see now with uh, consumers, which are not rushing precisely to buy battery electric vehicles, eh? despite the incentives and the subsidies, uh, we don't see the numbers on sales of battery electric vehicles. Because still, probably they will continue improving, but now they don't provide response to many mobility needs. Uh, and that's why we see that um, we need to provide solutions to the fossilize um, these vehicles. Now we see 10, as I said, soon we see 20, and maybe the standard that we are developing now for the 20, that is up to 20% ethanol, and then the rest, the gasoline, that could be a reality in a few years in the European uh, gasoline pumps. In the future, post 2035, it could be an E20, where we have up to 20% renewable ethanol, which is 100% GHG savings, and then the rest, an e-gasoline, synthetic gasoline, could be a methanol to gasoline, which is also 100% GAG emissions uh, free. And uh, this could be a way to continue providing alternatives to uh, citizens, for example, that use uh, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. There are studies that show that plug-in hybrid electric vehicles are uh, using running with 100% GAG uh, uh, savings um, free um, fuels basically have lower total life cycle emissions than battery electric cars running with renewable electricity. So that way I think it's important to really take decisions as we move forward based on the total GHG emissions, that's the common goal, and we need to use every single uh, sustainable solution that is available. And we have a clear framework in which the use of a crop base in this case is clearly uh, limited by our sustainability criteria. That should give us, all of us, peace of mind to ensure that uh, this contribution of crop-based is really done to the extent 
is meeting these sustainability criteria. Uh, I insist again because this is an important point that sometimes is missed on the, on the debate. Well, the next question that's come in is for Bernd. Uh, this question is from Soren Hava from Concito. Uh, question for DG Energy. To what degree will biofuels be handled in ETS2, in the emissions trading system? Uh, will, for example, crop-based biofuels require purchase of more quotas uh, than the use of advanced biofuels will? I'm, I'm not aware of, of any different treatment of different types of, of, of biomass um, on this. I mean, that's also, I mean, it's, it's not, not a file I'm specifically working on, but I'm not aware that there is, there is a different um, treatment so far on the ETS for um, crop-based biofuels. I mean, they have to be sustainable, obviously. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that's much I can, can uh, say on that matter. Okay. Um, next question I'm going to put to Chelsea. So this question is from Harshal Desai. How does the EU's opposition to first-generation biofuels, so things like palm oil, um, how does that align with the availability of waste and residues for biofuel production to meet demand? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so there are a lim there is a limited amount of waste and residue material. Um, so there are really low greenhouse gas feedstocks, but because they are simply waste and residues, um, they, they won't be available at the scale needed to decarbonize. So that goes back to the same point um, that I was making originally, which is um, that's going to bring in the need for these synthetic fuels, and, and we need to figure out how to make them, them cost effective. Okay. Uh, David, did you want to come in on that as well? or? Well, maybe just to say that the, there is, I mean, we have an incredible asset in Europe, which is these uh, 50 biorefineries, providing us with this renewable ethanol, but also with um, domestic supply of uh, vegetable protein. They also providing us with a, a source of high quality biogenic uh, CO2 and also some other uh, wastes that can be used under a circularity approach. And these are an incredible asset for Europe. Uh, red 2 focuses on one aspect, uh, the possible future uh, European protein strategy will focus on another, but we need to have this holistic view and realize this incredible asset we have in Europe with these uh, 50 biorefineries that continue to improve the footprint, continue to improve how uh, much GAG savings uh, uh, we are generating, and it's something we need to be proud in Europe uh, of what we have achieved with a lot of engineering and as I said before, kind of uh, leading the way at a global level. Uh, next question is again for Bernd. Sorry, Bernd, you're in the hot seat here, I think. Uh, this question is from Emmanuel Desplachamps from SEPSA, uh, uh, from the energy producer and obligated party, SEPSA. Will the European Commission provide the much-needed certainty to industry and adopt the update of Annex 9, list of feedstock, before the end of this mandate, it was due in June 2019 and every two years thereafter. Well, maybe one clarification, a review is due every two years under the Renewable Energy Direction. A review does not mean that actually a delegated act or legislation is adopted. So, so we have done a review and we are indeed planning to, to adopt um, um, a delegated act. So we have received comments from stakeholders, lots of member states, we are looking at that. And our aim is indeed to come to a conclusion 
by, by let's say, end of this year. Um, well, conclusion, adoption of a legal instrument is maybe not always um, uh, identical, but um, yeah, we, we want to f uh, close this file now. Okay, another question to you, Bernd. This one is from Barba Smelagic from Transport and Environment, the NGO. Uh, Ms. Baldino mentioned that phasing out palm and including soy is key. Uh, you, Bernd, are currently updating the report on high ILUC risk feedstocks. When will it be out, considering it's delayed since June 2021? And what should be expected from the review on palm and soy? Well, what can be expected? Uh, expected can be that we will have a new data, so a new data base. We are working on that. It's indeed true that um, the, yeah, the Commission is required to uh, review the dedicated act and the data this year. We had their legal deadline of uh, 1st of September. However, we also had a review of the directive, which slightly changed um, the requirements for the review, so what the Commission has to look at. And the new RAT is not yet in force. It will come in force um, soon. Um, and then, then we will also adopt um, the report and um, do, uh, do the review. So that's also on our table as, as next steps. Hopefully this, this year, but or early, early next year. So I'll put another question to you, Berns, but I'll also have you comment on this, David. Uh, the question is from Leonard Vosner uh, from Liquid Gas Europe. If advanced biofuels are promoted in the RED, and given the concerns surrounding food crops, shouldn't it be possible to include advanced biofuels from waste feedstocks, like municipal solid waste, for example, in a definition of CO2-neutral fuels? Well, this, again, as I said, the CO2-neutral fuels, that's a file where not energy in lead. So we are looking at that, and uh, we are working together with the colleagues uh, on this matter. But, um, yeah, but this is still work in, uh, in progress. Um, and I, I don't cannot go further into this on that. David, do you think it should be included in the definition? Well, the challenge for member states is huge. 29% by 2030, we are at 69 at the moment. The way ahead, I mean, is, is a huge mountain we need to climb. We need every single solution that we have at hand. So we should have like a screener of all solutions based on life cycle assessment of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, based on that, decide on every working solution that is also uh, sustainable. Does the technology work? Yes, is the first question. If it is work, does it pass the test of GAG savings? Yes or no? And if it passes, we need to use it, because otherwise we are not going to get uh, to the challenge. So, does the technology work? Probably something we need to examine. And second, is this responding to the sustainability criteria and the GAG emissions uh, savings need? Uh, and then uh, we need everything. So Just the path forward is, is, I think, quite quite simple in that sense. Go ahead. Um, but the carbon neutral definition that we're talking about is related to the uh, passenger car CO2 standards. And in that case, um, the commission's modeling, but also uh, many ICCT studies show that um, it is cost effective, feasible, and from a life, life cycle greenhouse gas perspective, um, the like the best way is with direct electrification. So expanding the definition to me beyond e-fuels is not necessary. So we have three questions left. They're all for Berndt, so I'm going to put them to you all at once here. 
and then we'll go to closing remarks from each of the panelists. Uh, so first question is from Ralil Kajaste. Uh, restricting the biofuel resource base with simultaneous reductions for sustainable forestry cuttings will reduce the amount of biofuel supply in the EU. Will this be compensated with import from non-validated sources? Second question from Claire Kue. Advanced biofuels in the form of SAF, sustainable aviation fuels, are the future of decarbonization of aviation. What is the perspective of the European Commission on the refuel aviation mandates beyond 2030? We certainly need biofuels there. Third question from Ignacio Guibert. Is the Commission considering a review of the fuel quality directive in the coming term? I know it's a bit early to say. Uh, so first question there on the uh, imports of non-validated sources. Well, we are not having any imports of non-validated sources. So of course, all biofuels or all sustainable energy uh, or bioenergy use need to be validated, whether it's in line uh, with the sustainability criteria and all other criteria related to that. And um, we are one of the focus we are working on is to make our system for certification fit for all purposes, including um, um, having a stronger or even stronger rules for, for, for imports due to the union database to have a full transparency of all flows of, of fuels and, and feedstock. And on the refuel aviation mandates beyond 2030? Well, to my understanding, there are targets which are ongoing until 2050, actually. So. Um, I think there we have a, a long-term um, framework which, uh, which is already in place and which gives certainty. And is the Commission considering a review of the Fuel Quality Directive in the coming term? Well, again, I mean, that's, first of all, we had a bit of a review of the Fuel Quality Directive because as part of the um, proposal for the, uh, for the change of the Renewable Energy Directive, um, the provisions on, yes, the targets for emission reductions in the FQD as well as the sustainability credit, they were all removed from the FQD. The second question is whether then we have um, for the quality aspects of fuels also a revision. Well, that's more a question you have to pose to my colleagues from, from DG Klima who are working on that. There were some thoughts about it, but I'm, I don't, I'm not aware that they have a firm a decision has been taken by the Commission. One last question, if you'll excuse me, because one more came in, from Vincent Dierkins. Did the Commission conduct any studies on the link between first-generation biofuel production and food prices? If not, does it plan to do so? Well, in, in a way, you, we did a, a lot of studies on indirect land use changes, and this is all done on modeling. And in model, you have um, well, you have an effect, a shock kind of on the global trade system uh, due to the additional demand for, for feedstock. Um, this has an a price effect, and the price effect has um, the impact on, on indirect land use change in a way. So we always did that, and we also saw that there are there were impacts. I mean, there were indeed, as was mentioned, um, higher for, for, for oil crops. Um, than for starch-rich uh, crops or for, for cereals generally, which is largely related to the scale of demand in the EU, which where we have 80% of first-generation biofuels are, are done for biodiesel, also are oil crop-based, and 
well, the rest of the 20% is, is sent from uh, starch-rich crops. Um, well, we just reflect it. So we always did that. The changes were not huge, but of course, also need to take into account that the, that the shares of an energy consumption of these are also not huge. So um, in, a, in a way, for the taking into account the shares of these biofuels and the contribution towards the economy, the impact on prices was actually substantial. And small, but still substantial in relation, I would put it like this. And of course, now we're in a situation where there is still a, still a risk due to yeah, the, the war in Ukraine on, 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 um, yeah, on impacts on supply, and therefore we need to be very careful what, what is ongoing there. Well, I want to finish up by getting some closing, quick closing thoughts from each of the panelists. Michael, let's start with you. Um, I'd like to hear from you, where do you think biofuels will be in the renewable energy mix in the European Union by 2030 and by 2040? What do you envision as the future, their future place in this uh, energy transition? Yeah, it depends on how quickly we can speed up the investment in e-fuels and electricity. Uh, so I have no concrete forecast here. Uh, I just wanted to mention two things. Um, from the Renewable Carbon Initiative, we think we need a carbon management, a comprehensive carbon management to understand uh, which uh, sustainable carbon supply we have from biomass, including um, uh, crop-based, from CO2, fossil and um, biogenic emissions, and from chemical recycling. So understand supply and then demand from different sectors and to organize it not only for the energy sector, but also including the chemical and material sector. Um, and I, I also think if you look just to the land efficiency, uh, there was a discussion before using PV on farmland. If you see that PV, um, uh, e-fuels from PV are about 25 times more land efficient than crop-based, I think the future will be uh, e-fuels here. And you can also combine with agri-PV, farmland and PV that are great um, options they're using mainly in China today, but could be uh, the same in, in the European Union. And if we invest here in PV, wind uh, and e-fuels strongly, then the share of uh, biofuels will, of course, be uh, decrease a lot. And again, we can use the bioethanol best in the chemical industry. David, how about you? Based on the current trajectory, where do you expect biofuels to be in the mix in 2030? And where do you hope for them to be? Maybe they're two different things. Sure. I mean, it's very clear the European Union cannot afford to have an energy transition that is just for the rich. We need to use all solutions which are sustainable, according to the sustainability criteria of RED, and we need to be technology inclusive. And it sense biofuels provide a solution that is already available, is working to decarbonize, and is providing us with the most cost-efficient way to the fossilized transport. In that sense, I think they should continue to play a key role, and regulations should continue to be technology inclusive to the extent all the solutions address the sustainability criteria of RED. Chelsea, where do you expect biofuels to be in the renewable energy mix? 
Well, I hope that um, the current trajectory for support for advanced biofuels made from waste and residues continues and that the, the cap um, on conventional biofuels also remains. And like I said before, that member states really see this opportunity um, for the implementation of the revised RED in limiting um, the worst of the feedstocks, which are soy and palm. And Bernd, uh, from the policy standpoint, based on our current trajectory, where do you envisage, envisage biofuels being in the renewable energy mix in 2030, 2040? I cannot give you a concrete figure, but um, as I lined out already, we, we believe that uh, we will need to have a substantial contribution in the transport sector for biofuels. And the increase we will get needs to come from, from advanced biofuels. Um, together with that, uh, we need to have um, yeah, also substantial amounts of, of hydrogen-based fuels. So uh, we have no longer a specific target for advanced biofuels, but a, but a mix, and both will develop in these both of types of these fuels in, in those sectors where they're most needed. And the biggest thing will come from um, electrification, uh, in, well, in, in particular in for, for cars and, and rent, uh, and we have to see how it develops in heavy duty. That's not yet fully clear, but so it will, biofuels will likely not take the, the biggest share of, uh, of contribution, but a substantial share of decarbonization in, uh, in, in the transport sector. So certainly I think we've heard a consensus that there is a place for biofuels in the energy future. The question is where that place is going to end up. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you to all the panelists for some really interesting interventions. I think what we've heard here is really that, uh, well, now the really hard work starts in the national capitals, right? And so now it's going to be time for transposing this into law, implementing it and enforcing it. And that's really going to be the key thing to watch as we go forward. There's a lot of companies that are going to be watching this very closely. Uh, there's a lot of citizens who will be watching this. Well, maybe if they're not watching this closely, they'll be affected by it because, of course, this is going to make a big difference for our future transport mix. So we'll certainly keep watching this issue here at Your Active, as I'm sure you will, uh, those of you watching at home as well. So I want to, uh, first of all, a round of applause for our excellent panelists. And then I'd like to thank you watching at home, spending your afternoon with us. I hope you have a great rest of the day. And for those of you here in the room, I invite you outside for some networking following the event. Thanks and take care.